0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Palm Sunday, that's what we're looking at here in John 11. Palm Sunday is one of the most significant events in the church calendar year, uh, something that's been celebrated by Christians uh, for centuries. And it's also a significant event in the life of Jesus. Uh, it's one of the only events, uh, one of the, I should say one of the few events, that every single gospel writer includes in their account. Both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include a narrative about Palm Sunday, which is, if you didn't know, is the, the day in which Jesus, for the first time, publicly presents himself as Messiah to the nation of Israel. He comes, as we'll see here in John 12, riding lowly on a donkey. And this is significant because Jesus, prior to this, has been a bit more discreet with his ministry. Uh, oftentimes in John's gospel, we'll see cases where Jesus will heal someone, but he won't want it to blow up. He's not trying to, you know, he's not trying to be trending in Israel. He, he wanted to, to really stick to his father's will, and he's constantly using this phrase that the hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour has come uh, here in John 11 and 12. Um, And Jesus, for the first time, he is publicly presenting himself in Israel on Palm Sunday during the time, this is so important, during the time of Passover. One of the major feasts that uh, every Jew would observe and come to to Jerusalem to worship, they'd bring their sacrifices. Uh, There's some evidence and, and historians that have noted that there, are an estimated, there were an estimated and f- at least 250,000 sacrifices that were made in Jerusalem at this time, and each sacrifice represented a family. And so we're looking at at least 2.5 or so million people in Jerusalem at the time on Palm Sunday as Jesus is coming in, presenting himself, uh, again, riding lowly on a donkey, which is also interesting, um, Jesus is doing this uh, not just because it's like, yeah, I'll go with a donkey. You know, I thought of some other means of transportation. You know, Uber was really hard to get, so I'm going to go with a donkey. No, the reason why Jesus rode a donkey is, is historically this was a symbol of peace. During this royal procession, as Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, uh, it's called Palm Sunday, we'll see, because as he comes in, we'll, we'll see the, the, the people uh, coming out to meet him and laying down palm branches. That's, that, uh, palm branches were a sign of Jewish nationalism. And Jesus riding on a donkey into, in this procession was a symbol of peace, okay, it meant if, if a king was riding into your town on a donkey, it meant he wasn't there to throw down. He was there to shake hands and uh, be united. Uh, it's interesting because the opposite is that of a horse. If there's ever a royal figure riding on a horse, you know that he's coming to make war. And it's actually the image you get of Jesus in Revelation 19. It's really interesting. In Revelation 19, in the end, at the second coming, Jesus is not going to be riding on a donkey, with terms of peace, those terms of peace are available to all of us right now, but there is coming a time where God will judge the living and the dead, and Jesus will return, not on a donkey, but on a horse, not to make peace, but to make war. It's pretty significant. Um, But here, we're looking at this entry of peace uh, that he has here on Palm Sunday. And uh, it's, this is a, a, an event, the day is called Palm Sunday, but the triumphal entry uh, is what this is commonly referred to. Uh, this, this, this entrance that Jesus makes, this royal procession, it's called the triumphal entry. It's not in your Bibles, but that's just the title that's been given. Now today, what I want to look at is sort of the irony of this statement. The triumphal or the victorious entry. Certainly, nothing will ever threaten the victory of Jesus. Jesus is certainly our victorious king, our triumphant king. But what's ironic about this idea of his triumphant entry is the amount of of denial and rejection that Jesus actually ends up receiving. I'm sure it's his triumphant, uh, triumphal physical entry. We see there that Jesus physically is welcomed into Israel, but that wasn't his ultimate purpose. Uh, Jesus' goal and heart here as the Messiah is not merely to, to, to be you know, paraded and welcomed by a crowd. His ultimate goal is not to gain entry into the city. His ultimate purpose is to gain entry into the heart of man to gain spiritual entry into the heart of Israel. And that's why this word is so ironic because though Jesus here in John 12 is lauded and, and he's welcomed with, with, with um, palm branches and he's being praised, we're gonna see that this reception was contrary to the true rejection that ended up welling up in the people of Israel's heart towards the Lord, uh, it could really be called the the triumphal rejection uh Jesus being denied entry into the hearts of the people and uh, with that said, I want to say that this is uh unfortunately sort of the the story of of history uh you know uh, recently, because of the coronavirus it 's interesting how uh just how i don 't know if you notice this but like I've had some awkward interactions with random people in public um, due to just all the fears, the necessary concerns about spreading this thing. And so trying to limit my trips as much as I can to the grocery stores and and whatnot, but also still wanting to support some some local small businesses. And so, you know, sometimes just public encounters with people are just awkward in general. It's even more now uh, with this virus. Just yesterday, I was at my local coffee shop, Maine, and grabbing a... um, an afternoon drip coffee to go, and I was there at the register. I'd ordered, and I noticed an older couple came in behind me, and they were there at the door. And so once I was done, I kind of scooted over to the side. I, You know, I eyed it out, probably a solid eight feet from the register, maybe nine, maybe 10. I don't know, okay? I'm not not gonna get too proud there. But I definitely was a considerable distance, and I'm there, there waiting for my coffee, and the husband walks up to the register, and his wife goes, Honey, you need to step back. That gentleman is too close to you. And I'm going, what gentleman? Oh, me. I'm too. And, and it was kind of sort of this awkward, like, okay, sorry. I just got to, I'll, I'll move over even farther. So I, I kept a considerable distance, like 20 feet. I ended up getting away from them. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how this virus is, is kind of causing this rejection, this social rejection. Well, let that be an illustration just to, for us to think about this, that there is another virus that has been causing us to keep God at arm's length. And it's the story of humanity, and it's the virus of sin. This is the the story of our relationship to God. You have a God who creates man to be close, to be in relationship with man, to work in man's life, to have his way to lead humankind into his great purposes, to engage in relationship with man. And this, this is the story of what sin has caused. Sin is a virus that's caused us to push God away. We've socially distanced from God, and this is the story of, of, of humanity throughout history. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's, it's Israel in the wilderness. And it can even be true of our lives today. how sin causes us to reject the relationship that God wants to initiate with us, and we close ourselves off to him. Um, what's amazing about God that we, and this is, as I said, this is kind of the, the, the story, the history of that. But the overtone of that story, which is even better, is not just that God extends his hand and then we reject him, but here is what's amazing about the Christian message. Despite that rejection, God is still always reaching. That's what's so incredible. I don't know about you, but for me, when someone rejects me, I tend to go, well, you know, fine, you know, dust off my shoulders and just kind of move on. But this is who God is. God, despite always being rejected by man, is constantly still pursuing relationship. And this is what I want us to think about today on Palm Sunday, Um, is there any area of your life where you have been rejecting God? He has been seeking to gain entry in your life and maybe you have instead been pushing him away. You know, Paul talks about this encouragement not just for people who are not following Jesus because that's first and foremost important that that, that you would not push God away, that you would not be your own savior but that you would welcome him. But Paul even says in Hebrews chapter three, um, he says, but exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Paul warns against this tendency to even though at one time you opened up your heart and your life to God, even as a follower of Jesus, you can slowly but surely become calloused and deceived and you can push him away. Now, I'm talking a lot about this because this is the story of Palm Sunday, I wish Palm Sunday was a happier message. You know, I wish Palm Sunday was a was a story about just palm branches, and we love that. We're from Palm Beach County, you know, and you know, and just celebration and, and a good 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 story. And uh, the truth is that Palm Sunday, it it's followed by Good Friday. Uh, there, there, this is a story of rejection. I, I want us to look at the context here and just begin to ask ourselves um, Am I open to Jesus? Or am I hardened to him? Am I like the disciples? Am I like well, we're going to see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Or am I more like the common people? Am I more like the Pharisees? And I, I want us to look at specifically in this text, let's look at three specific areas, three specific ways that um, we can, or, or aspects of Jesus that we can sort of deny, that we can push away and not receive and welcome into our lives. The first one, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do this. The first question and area of God and Jesus' ministry that we want to evaluate is what we'll call um, the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. Um, are, are we, am I, are you, welcoming and receiving the work of Jesus? Of Jesus in our lives. Uh, we, we left off last week in John 11 with the incredible miraculous work of Jesus in resurrecting Lazarus, Jesus's close friend and compadre who had been dead for four days decomposition started to set in. It was a stanky, stank stench, and Jesus still performed this wondrous miracle, bringing him back to life. And in John 11, verse, verse 45, here's what it says. Look at your Bibles with me, John eleven forty five. 45. It says, after this miracle, it says, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, they believed in him. So, so, the idea here is look at this miracle worker. I want to trust in this work, this, this incredible miracle worker who does the works of God, and I want to believe in him. The idea is there, I want to experience his work in my life as well. The, the dead things in my life, I want to see him resurrect. I want to believe and trust and live in this incredible miracle worker's uh, wondrous power. So it says many people go, wow, I I want your work in my life, Jesus. I want that as well. But verse 46 says, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did, which is an an incredible verse. Like the fact that that happened, the fact that Jesus performed this miracle of resurrecting a dead guy after four days, and that there were people who saw that and yet still walked away in unbelief is mind-bending. It, it just proves the fact that seeing a miracle, seeing God you know, with your very eyes is not enough. Um, it really, the real issue that needs to be overcome is not our sight, but it's the hardness of our hearts. That still, after God does the miraculous, we still can reject his work in our lives. It's amazing. But notice what these people did. Instead of believing in Jesus, they went tattletaling. And they went to go, ooh, we're going to go tell the Pharisees why Jesus, you know what he's doing? What? He's bringing dead people back to life. It's like, you're going to tell on Jesus for that. You're going to snitch on him, okay? So, you know, you got to watch out. Snitches get stitches. And these guys didn't know that, all right? So verse 47, here's what they do. The chief, so they go and they tell the chief priests and the Pharisees, and here's what happens. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 47, it said, gathered a council, And said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they go and they tell on Jesus to the Pharisees. Now, we've learned a a bit about these these guys, the Jewish leaders, um, the Pharisees. These were the ones who, you know, it's interesting. uh, In the gospel account, these are the ones that are mostly opposing the work of God. Uh, It's not the sinful people, it's the self-righteous people. In fact, uh, if you read the Gospels, these are usually the ones that are receiving the most scathing comments, the most like rough rebukes from Jesus. It's not the prostitutes, the adulterers, it's not the, the tax collectors and the sinners. They're certainly being called to repent, but it's the religious people that are often getting the most harsh words from Jesus. Woe to you. Uh, That's the idea that that we see Jesus communicating to these leaders. Now, here we have these two groups of leaders that um, are actually some of the most um, passionate enemies. You have the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are kind of like your classic hyper-legalistic, conservative, religious believers, The Sadducees, on the other hand, are more of a secular, uh, liberal, political religious uh, group. So they're religious, but they don't believe in most of the Torah. They don't believe it's the inerrant word of God. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They're very much secularist in that. And they're very politically driven. Uh, It's really all about their relationship to Rome and their positions and their power. And so just like today, okay, conservatives, liberals... They don't always make the most peaceful Thanksgiving dinners. And in this culture, you have a great divide, these enemies between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But here's a question I'd ask you What is the one thing that throughout history has made enemies allies? There's one thing throughout history that has made even the worst enemies allies, and it's this it's a mutual enemy. A mutual enemy will make two enemies allies. Um, You know, it's like when um, Dolphins fans and uh, Bills fans root against the Patriots. You know, It's, it's like that kind of a thing. It's like we celebrate the loss together. Well, here, Jesus was that mutual enemy. And though his work was meant to be applied to their lives, and though Jesus came to save them, I mean, think of all the different ways Jesus came to accomplish his work in their lives, the work of salvation, the work of using their, their spiritual influence for the kingdom. These men, they saw Jesus' work as a threat and I want you to notice specifically what they saw it as a threat to. Verse 14 says that they, they were concerned that, that if Jesus' ministry continues to blow up, if this, if this flame continues to spread, this fire, he said, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Uh, the, the Romans won't like this uprising of, of revival that will happen. And even though this is the Son of God, the only man that should be followed we don't want to sacrifice. We don't like the, the, the thought that our positions will be taken away from us. Think about this. The reason why they were not welcoming the work of Jesus in their life is because of what it would cost them. It would cost them their positions. It would cost them their, their pride. You know, I, I think we could probably resonate with that. I don't know about you, but I know for me, that's probably the main thing that keeps God's work out of my life. What's the thing that keeps me dependent on Jesus and, and trusting in his work in my life? Well, it's the thought that I have it on my own, that I can do it myself. It's my pride. And to really experience the work of Jesus in me and through me means that I have to get off my high horse. I have to give up my position. I have to give up my place and say, No, you're the king, you're the Lord, you're the only one capable to do this, to 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 lead me. I can't lead myself. See, there's a sacrifice involved in experiencing the work of Jesus in our lives. And by the way, the work of Jesus in every way. I think of three specific ways. First, the work of Jesus for us. I mean, before anything, the work that Jesus came to accomplish was something that was for these religious leaders. What's that work? Going to the cross and giving himself as the righteous sacrifice. Them saying, I'm not righteous enough. All, even all my best righteousness isn't enough. So, so I'm going to put myself low and receive what Jesus has accomplished for me. Most people will miss the eternal hope that Jesus has offered to them because of self-righteousness. Well, yeah, I prayed a few prayers and I was raised in the church, but at the end of the day, the confidence, it can lie in our own righteousness, the pride of our own doing. Man, that'll keep us from experiencing his work for us. I I pray that our own self-righteousness will never keep us from trusting in Jesus's righteousness, from receiving his righteousness. That's what these Pharisees, they they modeled that. Also, not just Jesus' work for them, Jesus' work in them. That was the, the, the main difference between Jesus and religion at the time. Religion at the time, the focus was outward. What you do, you're at, you know, how you're perceived by man. And when Jesus came, the reason why he was so appealing to people is because the, the, the common man, which I love, there's a verse in John that says that the common man heard Jesus gladly. Like just the average Joe 9-to-5 blue-collar worker, he resonated with Jesus' ministry. Why? Because what Jesus came preaching was not behavior modification, but heart transformation, so see, the appeal of Jesus was all these people were like burnt out on religion. And they're like, I'm sick of just being told what to do. What we really need is someone to work in my life and change my heart. And that also costs us our pride. Because a lot of us, it's our pride that's forcing us to maintain this appearance on the outside that's keeping us from experiencing God's work on the inside. That's what they were rejecting, the work of Jesus. And lastly, their work, his work through them this is why God works for us and in us to use us to work through us into other people's lives. And God wants to work, listen, God wants to work through your life. Your life is not your own. It's not even for you. It's for the kingdom and for others. Our lives are to be spent in the mission and the ministry of God, to be available for God to work through me. And how much of our pride keeps us from that? How much of our position and wanting to do our own thing and, and live our own way with our own plans keeps us from this same work. Uh, the Pharisees, unfortunately, were opposing the work of Jesus because of what it would cost them. I would ask you today, what is that thing that you are unwilling to sacrifice to experience the work of Jesus in your life? What is that thing that you are spending all of your time and your energy on um, that is keeping you from this, and I would just urge you and encourage you and remember whatever it is it doesn 't compare. nothing compares to the work of Jesus for you in you, and through you that 's worth throwing everything out for and these Pharisees unfortunately they didn 't get that memo uh, look at look at what, what goes on happening here. look at how um, how ironic this is it says uh, and one of them. "'Caiaphas, being high priest,' verse 49 that year, "'said to them, "'You know nothing at all, "'nor do you consider that it is expedient for us "'that one man should die for the whole nation.'" Interesting, the people. "'And that not the whole nation should perish.'" Now, look at verse uh, 51. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, you have this council meeting, and the super humble, quotes, this is sarcasm, the super humble spiritual leader Caiaphas, the, the high priest that year, he stands up and he humbly says, you know nothing at all. What a guy. What? He doesn't say, no, you might be wrong. He says, you know nothing, settle, okay? You know nothing. And here's what his comment is. You know, the, 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 the leaders are going, man, we gotta snuff this whole Jesus thing out because Rome, what if it, what if it like, draws the attention of Rome and we lose our position? And the, the high priest goes, what you, you don't know anything. This is, could be a good thing. Because what will happen is Jesus will be the one getting killed by Rome if he leads this, uh, you know, uh, this perceived insurrection. The Romans will look on and go, we got to take out this Jesus. And he says this, he, listen to this statement. He says this not knowing that he's prophesying. Do you catch that? He goes, it's a good idea. Listen to what he literally says. That one man should die for the people. And not just for the people, but the whole nation And gather up all that are scattered abroad. Okay, now, uh, Caiaphas doesn't realize it, but he's talking about something called substitutionary atonement. A Christian New Testament doctrine that says that that the sacrifice of one, Jesus, is sufficient for all. That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he he doesn't realize he's saying that. Isn't that amazing? By the way, it's amazing who God will speak through. Be careful that we don't create our um, checklist of the different theological opinions that someone has to have before God can speak through them. They have to have this eschatology, they have to be this way of reformed, or, or this way of, of non-Calvinist, or they have to be a cessationist, or, you know, we kind of create our lists of the people that God will speak through, and we forget that God s- prophesies through fallen men. God speaks through donkeys, it's like, a lot of times I think we can be shut up to the work of God in our lives because we create these like these boxes through which God could speak. I think we need to be more open and receptive to anyone or anything that the Lord would speak to. Um, now, now go, as it goes on from here, it says, verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, they had already put Jesus on their hit list, but now Jesus moves from the Pharisees' hit list to Israel's most wanted list. Look at this. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country uh, near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the, excuse me, from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone, here's the command, if anyone knew where he was, Jesus, he should tattletale and report it that they might seize him. So we just get this picture of these religious leaders opposing the work of Jesus in every way because of what it would cost them. Now Jesus is on their uh, Israel's most wanted list, and if anybody sees him, they got to report him. the The issue that the Pharisees have is that all the people love Jesus. Uh, the masses of people are, are um, they find Jesus incredibly appealing. Now, notice the contrast there in in chapter 11 with the miracle of Lazarus, now to verse uh, chapter 12. It says, then six days before the Passover, so here we go, we've officially arrived on the the starting point of the last week of Jesus' life prior to his death and resurrection, and six days before the Passover, Palm Sunday, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, remember that guy? There he, uh, he was with him. There he made, they made him a supper, and Martha served. Of course she did, okay? But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, this is a really cool scene. What a contrast between the Pharisees rejecting Jesus' work, and now we have these siblings. Martha, um, the, the man who was formerly dead, Lazarus, the artist formerly known as dead, you know, um, Lazarus, and they're with Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us that they're at Simon the leper's house, and there's Martha. It's just serving the Lord. There's Lazarus. When, you come, when Jesus raises you back from the dead, you're just like, I just want to be with him. I'm just going to hang out with Jesus. So he's just sitting there with Jesus. I imagine, you know, Lazarus and, and Simon, they're kind of comparing stories. Simon's, you know, starts and he's all, you know, I was, I was a leper. I was a leper. I had leprosy. I hadn't, you know, I, I watched my, my appendages decay. I was cut off from my family and Jesus, he healed me, and Lazarus is like, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good story, you know. Um, I was dead, <laughs> like four days, and I was in heaven, and I was, you know, or I was talking to this, and then I got beamed back to earth, okay, that's kind of Lazarus. Anyway, so they're there in the house, and it says this, notice this, Martha, of course, is serving, they're having a meal, what a contrast, by the way, between the Pharisees rejecting and just the reception of Jesus into their lives, into their home. Then Mary, verse 3, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet, this is interesting, with her hair. This was a a common gesture that you would perfume someone and you would perfume the household, uh, often on their head. Um, But here's Mary not just honoring Jesus, but she is taking the posture of a servant, cleaning his feet. Um, Mary's Every time in the Gospel of John that we look at Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus, and here she is again. It says, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the oil. Beautiful, just perfumed in the house. Uh, Verse four, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, we've all heard of him, uh, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Now, John eventually learns this about Judas, who is the treasurer of the disciples' ministry and Jesus' ministry, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. So he was the, the treasurer over the ministry box, and he we, we discover this, you know, a lot of times I think people look at Judas and they're like, oh, poor Judas, he was chosen to be the son of perdition, you know, to be the, the one that would reject Jesus, and um no, Uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility at work here. Judas himself hardened his heart towards the Lord uh, because he was greedy and he was a thief. And Jesus said, let her alone to Judas, for she has kept this for this day of my burial. For the poor you'll have with you always, but me you won't have with you always. Uh, So the first thing we talked about is how we can reject the work of Jesus. And here, the second thing that we see being rejected uh, is the worth of of Jesus, the worth of Jesus. Um, you see to Mary that Jesus is worth everything. There is nothing that compares with his worth. You know what word we get from the word worth? Worthiness. The value of the Lord being worth and worthy of every drop of my energy, every cent in my pocket. Every effort of my life, he's worth it all. He's even worth costly oil. Um, it tells us there, uh, what, what is it, 400 denarii. Very costly oil. Um, 300 denarii, excuse me. Uh, this is, listen closely, this is a year's worth of wages. This is a year's salary that Mary is taking and putting and bringing to the feet of Jesus. And, it's, and so, what, what a contrast, Mary's going, Jesus, you are worth it all. I'm not hardened to your worth. I see you as the most valuable, the most precious. You are not the means. Jesus, you're not the means to something great, but you are the greatest thing. You're the most valuable thing. There's nothing worthy in my life like you. No one more worthy but you. And there's, on the other hand, Judas... And what was worth it all to Mary, listen, is wasteful to Judas. Um, Imagine the blindness of Judas to see uh, the unworthiness, how he saw the unworthiness of Jesus. It's interesting. Um, And let me say this. This is what sin does. We talked earlier about the deceitfulness of sin to harden our hearts. But there's another thing that sin subtly does, and it blinds our eyes. It blinds us to the fact that Jesus is worth everything. And even today in the American church, you have versions of this with celebrity uh, pastors who are using their platforms, uh, using Jesus. The prosperity gospel uses Jesus to get something else. And what that is, is is people are blind to the worth of Jesus. And they think they, because of greed and sin, they think the ultimate worth is, is financial. And listen, before we point the finger, we gotta look at ourselves and go, man, how do I do this? Like, what in my life am I holding back because of sin? Like, where in my life haven't I got a vision of the worthiness of Jesus? And so, instead of being like Mary, laying it all down in sacrifice and worship, I'm holding on to it. You know, we have a a great picture here of three things that were being spent in sacrifice for Jesus. You have Mary, uh, or Martha, who's serving. Jesus was worthy of her efforts and her energy to serve him. You have Lazarus who's spending time with him. Jesus was so worthy that he was worthy of Lazarus's time. He's worthy of my time. Uh, Time with Jesus is never wasted, right? He's worthy of it. It's worthwhile. Uh, Serving Jesus is never wasted if it's unto the Lord. And then you have have Mary. It's her currency. It's literally her her financial um, security that she's dumping at his feet. And this isn't a message to talk about tithing and, 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 and all that. It's a message of understanding to, to, under, to, to go, listen, like even, well, speaking of tithing, even of giving to the Lord, that's not something that we go, God, this is mine, but I'm going to give you some. When we bring our offerings to the Lord, what we're saying is, God, you own it all. And here's a display of that. You're worth it all. You can have it all. Um... Is there any way in your life that sin has blinded you to the worth of Jesus? That's why we praise him. We appraise him because of his worth. We declare who he is. I pray that you wouldn't be closed off to his work, that you wouldn't be closed off also to his worth. Whatever that thing is that has, in your mind, become more worth him, that you would surrender it underneath him. It doesn't mean that we throw it out but it means that we give it to him. We go to his feet and we say, Lord, my family, my job, my money, everything, it's at your feet. You're the ultimate worthy king. Uh, and then lastly, write this last one down. We'll call it the word of Jesus. The three things that Jesus was rejected over. He was rejected over his, uh, his work was rejected, his worth was rejected, and now we see his word being rejected. Um, As the story goes on, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there, and they came, verse uh, 9, not for his sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. It's like the circus is in town, you know? The man who once was dead, but now alive. Come, step right up. Come see Lazarus, okay? Um, Anyway, it says, now, we're talking about how, how sin can harden us to Jesus, how we can blind us to the worth of Jesus. Now, I want you to see how sin can make us stupid, Okay, that's not a point, but it's a sub-point. Sin will make me do stupid things. Okay, look at this. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death. It's like, it's like saying, I'm going to shoot Superman. All right? I mean, think about this. Charles Spurgeon says, oh, the foolishness of those who th- uh, thinking that they could put someone to death that Jesus could resurrect another 1,000 times. I mean, this is Lazarus who just came back from the dead, and they are so mad that he was brought back from the dead by Jesus, they're like, we're going to kill him. It's like, okay, so sin will make you do stupid things. You're not thinking straight, all right? Uh, now, here is Jesus' triumphant, triumphal entry here. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, here's, here it is, Palm Sunday, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, Psalm 118 here, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So what an incredible scene. There's all this religious activity happening in the city with Passover, and people leave their religion to go meet Jesus. And they go out there, and they're welcoming here, quoting Psalm 118. Now, this is their expression, understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. They've heard about him. The nation has been waiting for the Messiah now, here's Jesus, this miracle worker. He, he matches all of the criteria of the Messiah in every way, even that he's coming on a donkey, as Zechariah 9 promised. And so they're calling out to Jesus, saying, Save us, deliver us. But we're going to see that there's a problem here. You see, um, there comes to be a collision between the vision of the people and the will of Jesus. that The people are going, save us. And what they mean by save us, the Messiah, is deliver us from this political oppression. Deliver us from this earthly enslavement to Rome. Be our Messiah. Lead our nation to a political uprising. Be the one to carry us into freedom. And Jesus was certainly there to carry them to freedom. Jesus was certainly there as their Messiah to save them, but it had more to do with eternal salvation than it did with political salvation. And so I want us to skip down and see where this happens. Um, As you go down in the text here, Jesus is speaking to the people, and in John 12, he says in verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This was a common um, theme and and, and verse from Jesus' ministry, uh, always calling us to to self-denial. But here, Jesus is not talking about giving up your life. He's talking about giving up his own life. That he's not here to to love his life and, and use it to accomplish earthly purposes, but he's there to lay it down for eternal purposes. He goes on to say this. He says, in verse 20, 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now Jesus begins to realize that the moment is near. He's been presented in Israel, and he knows that he is there to be Isaiah's suffering servant. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows that he's there to lay his life down. He has the power to do it. And I just love the humanity of Jesus here. Um, he's the one who tells us, Do not let your hearts be troubled. But we also see Jesus himself was even troubled. He found himself troubled. He says, and what, but what, what am I gonna say? Father, save me from this hour. What am I gonna say? Never mind. He submits to his Father's will. He says, for this purpose I have come. It's why I'm here, to give my life. Father, glorify your name. What a beautiful prayer in the wrestle here that Jesus has. It says, then a voice came from heaven, Epic moment saying, I have both glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by said, What was that? (laughs) This is crazy. They stood by and they said that it had thundered. Right? Did you hear that? Someone's like, Yeah, it was thunder. It was just thunder. And other people are like, that thunder was just talking, okay? That thunder just spit out a whole thunder sentence, okay? And others stood by and said, it was an angel speaking to him. So there's the word of God is like coming to the very ears of the people audibly. Audibly. Jesus said, this voice did not come because of me, because I needed it. It came for your sake. What a gift. They actually got to hear the audible, thunderous voice of God. Now, this is the judgment of the world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus goes, I'm here to cast out a ruler, but it's not the ruler of Rome. It's the ruler of the universe. It's Satan. And I'm not just here to cast out your earthly enemy, I'm here to cast out your eternal enemy. If if they could only receive what Jesus is saying here, your problem is not your problem, it's bigger than that. It's, It's a greater issue, it's sin, it's the brokenness of this world, it's not your nationalistic vision, it's something eternal. And he said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, if these people had hearts and ears to receive what Jesus was saying here and lay down their political agenda, they would be saying, awesome, bring it, right? They would start singing again, okay, Hosanna, save us then in that way, cast out the ruler of this world, lift yourself up, he's talking about his death on the cross. And draw all people to salvation through you. It says that he said this, verse 33 this he said, signifying by what death he would die, but instead the people answered him, We have heard from the law, we hear what you're saying, Jesus. Okay, we hear that. But, right, you ever been there? I hear you, but, it's like, well, you don't hear me then, okay? But we've also heard, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? How are, how are you going to accomplish our purposes if you're accomplishing your own? This is not going to work out. How are you going to do that if you're going to be lifted up? And Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke He spoke these things to them, his word, and then departed and was hidden from them. Now, a moment ago, we were watching these same people praising Jesus, welcoming Jesus, thousands upon thousands of people honoring Jesus, saying, Hosanna, you're the Messiah, coming on a, I mean, everything here would point to him. I I mean, how about this? They even have heard an audible voice from God. There's, there's, you would think there's no reason why these people right now would not just be opening their hearts and their ears to the word of God. But verse 37 says, although he had done so many signs before them, signs and wonders are never enough. By the way, an audible voice that you want from God is not going to be enough. The issue isn't whether, um, you know, you'll be fine as long as you can hear God speak to you. No, the issue is not hearing from him, the, the issue is receiving from him and being willing to put yourself under his word. And, and that's where we, we see uh, true freedom happen. But notice what happens. They did not believe in him. After all that, isn't that incredible? They did not believe. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, whose? Jesus's, and spoke of him. That's an incredible verse. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he saw Jesus's glory. That's what it tells us there. Isaiah is is prophesying, uh, and, and here we have again Um, the responsibility, the actions of man being mysteriously interwoven with the sovereignty of God and what we have here is people who though they've heard the audible voice of God, though they've seen the very signs and wonders of God, at the end of the day, they were unable to receive the word of God because of pride, because of an inability to lay down their agenda to receive God's words. They missed God's word because of their own agenda. And they hardened their hearts. Um, What has God been telling you? What has he been speaking to you? Or maybe what is the thing about God that you're having a hard time receiving? Could it be that it just contradicts your own agenda? Could it be that it's coming against what you want him to do and what you want him to say? Can I just say to you, there's nothing better than submitting to the words of God, letting letting his will override whatever your will might be. Jesus models that for us. Um, As I invite the band to come up and close, I want us to reflect upon this final thought. It says in verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, notice this, many believed in him, But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, because they loved, listen, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. At the end of the day, it wasn't that Jesus didn't work signs and wonders. It's not that he didn't speak God's word to them. It's not that there wasn't every reason to believe. It's just that they would rather have the praise of man than the praise of God. They cared more about something else than God. And um, that's what caused them at the end of the day to reject the Lord. Because they cared about other things. They cared about the praise of man rather than the praise of God. I would just ask you today, on this Palm Sunday, have you welcomed the triumphant King Jesus as Messiah into your life? Have you welcomed his work? Is there anything in your life keeping you from his work in your life? Your pride that's keeping you from experiencing that? Have you you been able to see his worth? Or maybe has there been sin that has blinded you to his worth and you've now seen him as a means to something else? Have you been able to receive his word? Even if it contradicts your agenda and your plan. Sometimes the problem is we care about other things rather than God, like these same people. But here's what's amazing. God has cared about us and he's loved us even when we haven't loved him. Jesus will still go and lay down his life for these very people. You know, Jesus gains many followers after his resurrection. It's likely that it was a lot of people here in this crowd that were rejecting him. But despite their rejection, Jesus will still ex- God will still extend his hand of love through going to a cross for them and then eventually welcoming them back into his family saying, come in, come know me, come receive from me. I wanna say that that's God's invitation to you today as well. I don't know if you've been social distancing from God, keeping his worth and his work and his word away from you, but can I say, God has not been socially distant from you. He's present, he's with you, he loves you, and despite how many times you have rejected him, he still pursues you. So let's surrender to him today. That's what our neighbors need from us. That's what this world needs from the church right now, to be fully surrendered to Jesus, to to fully welcome him and give him entry into our hearts and lives. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soullesschurch.com.